I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University, and I'm also that thief in the night you've heard so much about in uh, Christian movies. <laughs> uh, I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, and I am uh, struggling to get out of my sweater as I'm yanked up into the sky. <laughs> it's rapture time. <laughs> Oh man, uh, Halloween has really got me in a mood to watch all of these scary Christian movies. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. It really isn't. Have you ever seen? Sorry, this is uh, <laughs> this is a bad uh, bad start to the episode. Have you ever seen the the Nicolas Cage Left Behind movie? Uh, I have not seen it. No, I haven't. Have you? Yeah, it's amazing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that'll be my October watch. Yeah, it's a good idea. If you're uh, if like. Uh, movies with lots of jump scares in it are bad for you. <laughs> uh, Left Behind with Nicolas Cage is definitely the one that you need to watch. It's great. <laughs> uh, I'll keep that in mind. <clears throat> well, uh, for the last five episodes, we have been talking about evangelicalism, another very spooky thing. <laughs> Good October theme. Uh, we talked about conservative evangelicals and liberal ones. We looked at Walmart and oil industries and how they feed into evangelicalism and last week we talked about Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. And we've covered a lot of ground, but we were still kind of confused about some ideas that we've been playing around with. So we decided to talk to historian and expert and friend of the show, Heath Carter. Yeah, you might remember Heath from two past episodes we did. Episode 26 and 59, which seems so long ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, if you go back and check those episodes out, you can hear uh, Heath's first two appearances on the Magnificast, where we talk with him about Christianity and the labor movement. Um, man, they're really cool. Heath is a smart guy, and his books are very good. Um, <laughs> just plugging them right <laughs> put, here. Put that the most... on the back of the book. <laughs> he's a smart guy. He's nice. And his books are good, says me, <laughs> a, a man on a podcast. Um, but this time around, uh, we wanted to get uh, a long view on evangelicalism kind of as a whole. Um, and uh, not just what a few evangelicals think or how business interests get involved, but like what evangelicalism actually is, um, according to some historians and where it might be going. And Heath has written about that exact thing. So he was a good person to ask. <laughs> yeah, what we really admire, I think, about Heath's work um, in particular is his attention to these grassroots histories of Christianity. 
So we thought we'd get his take on what something like a people's history of evangelicalism or something like that might mean. Heath also pays a lot of attention to how solutions to institutional and systemic problems is always organizing. You know, not just saying this is bad or uh, being upset or complaining, but like really getting together and trying to do something. Um, and since evangelicalism is such a really powerful force and it's probably going to stay powerful for a little while, we wanted to hear from Heath also what his historical training suggests for people who are kind of thinking about how to challenge the reactionary and violent capacities of evangelicalism today. Uh, yeah. And as always, Heath's, uh, Heath's ideas are good. So you got to stay tuned to the, the very end to hear what he suggests. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, overall, this will be the last episode in our evangelicalism arc. So uh, hopefully it's been good and you've liked it. We've got surprisingly good feedback on Twitter, so it can't all be bad. Um, if you like what you hear, you should definitely share it with a friend. Um, give us an iTunes review or even support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you didn't like it, keep it to yourself. Don't tell me. And uh, that'll just be for the best. Um, yeah. yeah. Still support us on Patreon. Yeah, still support. Always support us on Patreon, whether you like it or not. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> next week, we'll probably take a break uh, before jumping into the next new theme. Um, so, I don't know. Just uh, keep an ear out for what we got going on next. Uh, But let's go to Heath. This week on the Magnificast, we got Heath Carter. He's back with us. Heath Carter um, is the Justin Timberlake to our Saturday Night Live. He's been on the show before (laughs) and he's back again. Um, Always happy. (laughs) Yeah. Love it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we're always happy to have you. Well, um, so you've been on the show before, but for those listeners who may not be caught up with our uh, extremely extensive backlog at this point, um, do you want to just like introduce yourself and tell us about who you are and what you're about? Sure. Uh, I, so I'm Heath Carter. I'm a, a historian of American Christianity, and uh, I've written a lot about kind of the intersections of Christianity and race and class and reform in the history of the modern United States. So wrote a book called Union Made, which uh, I know we've talked about on here before, which looks at kind of the, the working class origins of the social gospel. Um, and right now I'm writing a book about kind of Christianity and inequality in the modern United States and particularly kind of Christian a a, a social Christian tradition that has seen the fight against inequality as uh, an essential aspect of faithfulness in the modern world. Uh, So that's a big and and fun project. I I teach uh, American Christianity here at Princeton Theological Seminary now. That's a big change since last time I was on the the show. I was at Valparaiso University, great place for seven years, and uh, just got to Princeton this fall and am settling into a a new institution and loving it. And uh, that's a little bit about about me. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll circle back to the projects that you're working on, I hope, uh, toward the end of the, the hour here. Um, but maybe we could just start out sort of easing our way into some themes about evangelicalism in general. So uh, one thing that I think we value, especially about your work, Keith, is that you are able to see a lot of like weird angles on things uh, like evangelicalism or even like the social gospel that tend to be um, overlooked or, or not considered. But before we get to that, maybe we could just talk about your own uh, experience in evangelicalism. So you did an interview with Gideon Strauss, who's a prof here at the Institute for Christian Studies, where I go to school. 
Um, and you mentioned that in that interview that you had written a thesis on Left Behind, uh, which we thought was pretty wild, a, a senior thesis. Um, <laughs> it's, it's hard to imagine that you would write something like that unless you had an, a connection with evangelicalism already. So if it's not too personal, maybe you could tell us a bit about where you're coming from, your exposure to that, and yeah, how that shaped your work. Sure. No, I did. I wrote a, a senior thesis at Georgetown uh, as my kind of capstone for my theology major on on Left Behind. And I really got interested in that, um, probably because I was trying to figure out, you know, I think a lot of scholars do work that is somehow adjacent to some of the things that come out of their own biographies. Uh, and I was certainly interested in figuring out the world that I grew up in, which was um, in, first in Kansas, where I lived until I was 10, and then in Southern California, Orange County, a world that has gotten a lot of attention in the history of the new right uh, in recent decades. Uh, you know, I, I, I grew up in worlds where, you know, uh, the rapture and concerns about kind of the end of time, you know, end of days and whatnot were, were not just sort of um, things that theologians speculated about, but they were, they were ever-present concerns in my everyday life. And I, I remember being in fourth grade, we moved to, to Mission Viejo, California when I was 10, and uh, we lived right across the street from my elementary school, and I remember walking outside um, in the afternoons to make sure that I could hear children playing at that school uh, because I knew that if children were playing at that school that the rapture hadn't happened and that I had not been left behind, at least not yet. Uh, so, I mean, that, that, you know, that was sort of a deep um, sort of dispensationalism ran deep in the worlds that I grew up in. I, I think really they were now, I think, as I look back, worlds uh, that have been written a lot about, worlds of kind of contemporary um, white evangelicalism aligned with kind of Republican Party politics. Um, you know, I grew up in the 80s in the heyday of the moral majority, and I was part of that world. And um, it kind of provided me my first context for thinking about the meaning of the gospel for um, social and political life. And uh, so, yeah, I was very much of that, that world. In fact, I grew up going to uh, Rick Warren's church um, before it was the Saddleback that's kind of famous. It was meeting in a high school when we moved to Southern California. And... Uh, I was there during those days when it met at Tribeca Hills High School, and uh, it was a smaller, still a large church by most people's standards. I think it had like 2,500 people or so when we got to SoCal. Uh, but yeah, I went to, went to church there until I, until I left for college. So um, I definitely have uh, deeply evangelical roots, and, uh, and I recognize ways in which my formation in those communities remains really central in some ways to uh, who I am today. That's all really interesting um, from Rick Warren's church to uh, listening for the kids to make sure you didn't uh, you didn't miss the rapture. Yeah. I feel like the, uh, that uh, that specifically always checking on something to make sure you didn't miss the rapture is a key part of growing up evangelical. Uh, At least it resonates with me. And well, for me, it was also especially after I watched the thief in the night movies. I don't know if you guys know that. Yeah, but those movies traumatized me. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you that they they really because I believe I was a true believer in dispensational in times theology and so watching you know people who were not refused to take the mark of the beast get guillotined i mean it was pretty intense pretty intense. <laughs> good good october watches yeah definitely a uh, good spooky movie for halloween <laughs> well um <laughs> yeah back in uh, 2017 you co-edited a cool book called turning points in the history of american evangelicalism mm -hmm. um it's a volume of essays thinking about this 
uh, big wild thing that we call evangelicalism. Um, one of the things you note in the introduction, though, is that uh, the term evangelicalism is actually pretty weird, and some people don't even like using it. Yeah. Um, it's a complicated term, to yeah. say the least. Uh, but you do argue that there's still some value in it for historians. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. Why is evangelicalism such like a strange term? Um, yeah. What is it really identifying? What do you think it should identify? Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question and a thorny question for the reasons I say in that introduction. Um, you know, scholars have struggled uh, to define evangelicalism as, you know, in the last generation, there's been just an overwhelming amount of scholarship on American evangelicalism. And, and one of the big questions is, what are the boundaries of this movement? What really is at the center of it? And, uh, you know, I think, I think uh, early scholarship um, and scholarship that remains important in the field um, really emphasize certain kinds of theological characteristics. So an emphasis on the centrality of Christ and the authority of Scripture and um, the importance of a conversion experience and whatnot. Um, I think in, in the last decade or so, uh, there's been a real surge of interest in um, the more sociological um, boundaries of evangelicalism in the United States and the power dynamics that have always been present within evangelicalism. So, I mean, I do think it's a helpful term for thinking about a kind of uh, revivalistic uh, tradition that kind of that comes, you know, traces its roots back to the Reformation and that develops across the world. Um, I think the the tricky thing in thinking about it, one of the tricky things in thinking about it, is that. Um, I'm trying to think about how to how to put this, but basically, you know, when we when we talk about evangelicalism in, in modern American politics, what we're really talking about most of the time are white evangelical communities and networks that were forged in the mid 20th century. Um, institutions like Christianity Today, the National Association of Evangelicals. Um, the kind of empire that Billy Graham and Carl Henry and a certain group of, of mid 20th century evangelicals made. Um, and that is a, 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 a phenomenon that is more particular and needs, you know, a particular kind of history that connects in some ways to the broader story of revivalistic Christianities in the modern world, but that also has distinctive features, um, some of which are distinctive because they're of their American roots. Um, race, for example, is something that uh, functions very differently in Nigeria and in Kenya and in Guatemala than it does in the United States. When we talk about evangelicals in the United States, we have to really attend to race and not pretend that there aren't significant differences between evangelicalism as it developed in Guatemala and, and as it's developed here. And so um, all, for all these reasons, it's a thorny kind of topic for for conversation and scholars struggle to get kind of our a common language and categories. I mean, right now, one of the big debates obviously has to do with Trump and evangelicals and, um, you know, the famous 81% of white evangelicals that voted for Trump. There are some evangelical scholars who claim that those people aren't even really evangelical because they don't go to church and they don't, um, or maybe they go to church, but they don't hold to these kind of classical evangelical ideals as these scholars understand them to be. Um, I think that's, not the right way to think about it personally, uh, but you know that's part, partly the the Trump context has put an additional emphasis on these debates and divides among scholars. 
Yeah, thanks for setting it up that way. We'll definitely come back to the Trump stuff later because in large part, I think that's what motivated us to think about this ourselves on the podcast. So um, we'll ask you to say more about that shortly. Uh, but for the past few weeks, we've been looking into some background literature on, I guess, kind of what you're saying, trying to figure out what makes evangelicalism work in the U.S. specifically, historically or otherwise. And I think something that sticks out to us kind of being on the left is the strong connection that there is or seems to be between evangelicalism and the promotion of something like free enterprise or certain kinds of, of a conservative uh, ideology in the U.S. So in the last couple of weeks, we read Bethany Morton's book on Walmart. Um, we read Deridochuk's, uh stuff on Christianity and oil um, and talked to him. So, you know, these aren't the only examples of uh, connections between Christianity and capitalism. But as a historian who knows a thing or two about this, why do you think these connections are prevalent and easily made? You know, how did a religion um, premised on, you know, reading the Bible and encountering this, this guy who's kind of a rabble rouser in the Gospels, how does that become you know, a religion of big business or something like that in the U.S. Yeah, I think through a lot of work and a lot of intentionality and uh, and through some kind of um, maybe intrinsic sensibilities. But let me say a few things. I mean, one thing is in in many ways, evangelicalism, uh, yeah, the revivalism, the way that evangelicals have tended to read the Bible, these are not things that necessarily lead, you know, to uh, right-wing politics or, or class uh, politics at all. Um, in fact, what we know, and in, in my first book partly was partly about the fact that, you know, in the, in the early days of the labor movement, you had evangelicals in leadership in part because of what the Bible said about, uh, you know, the God siding with uh, the poor, the laborers worthy of his hire, James 5, and its radical condemnation of the rich and the ways that they exploit the poor. I mean, uh, plain readings of the Bible in the 19th century sometimes led evangelicals to take radical leveling social positions on everything from slavery to labor and whatnot. Um, partly because of that, and I think Tim Glegg's book, Guaranteed Pure, does a wonderful job of laying this out, that in fact, it's partly because the plain reading of scripture was um, had, had the ability to lead to radical politics that in places like the Moody Bible Institute, you get a strong embrace of dispensationalism in the early 20th century, partly because dispensationalism with its kind of um, arcane, intricate hermeneutical theories took, took you know, it sort of uh, modified that plain reading of scripture. And now all of a sudden, um, scripture's meaning was actually hidden. And so these kind of plain readings of scripture, which could lead to radical politics, were now disciplined by a dispensationalist hermeneutic that made interpretation of scripture the kind of uh, terrain that, you know, it had to be done by experts who had special insights into um, the meaning, the real meaning, the hidden meaning of particular verses and passages and books of the Bible. So, I mean, that's one example of the kind of work that's that's been involved. Um, you had kind of corporate and theological leaders collaborating and coming together to find a, a, a way to read scripture that would um, be less of a threat, I think, in many ways to the emerging kind of industrial order. Um, we know that there, there were, you know, there was widespread support for the New Deal in many corners of American Christian life in the 1930s. Um, but there was also a significant backlash to the New Deal, and partly that backlash was fomented by leading clergy and leading um, 
lights in the business and corporate worlds who were very intent on portraying anyone who, uh, again, took the Bible or the Christian tradition to be pointing toward New Deal style, welfare state, labor politics, et cetera, as pinko commies and reds. And their work is very deeply represented, widely represented in the archives of every denominational social gospel institution and apparatus across the country. Everywhere I go and look in these archives, you'll find the the materials that um, Fifield, who was a congregational minister, James Fifield in California, um, you know, is 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 sending out you know uh, letters and red alerts to Christians across the country and to the denominational boards, having them write in and say, "I resent the fact that the Federal Council of Churches is supporting this New Deal policy because it's a it's communist and it doesn't represent true Christianity." So, I mean, in other words, I guess part of what I'm saying is. There's a lot of organizing. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of intentionality in creating a culture of um, or, or creating this gospel of free enterprise and helping it to find a hospitable home within evangelical communities and Christian communities more broadly. And I think you know, I'm glad you all, you all interviewed Darren Docha because he does an excellent job of showing how similarly uh, oil men, um, you know, really took an interest in the things that Billy Graham and company were doing and helped to organize and fund the organization of um, organizations like the National Association of Evangelicals, which as Dochuk rightly argues in his book, was also a federation of anti-New Deal churchmen. And and these are all organizations that are getting funded by big oil. So um, in other words, Lots of work, lots of money, lots of time and organization to make, to make this uh, connection happen. And, and it has paid off in real world terms for the people who work for it. I think those kind of like, uh, I don't I don't want to call them secret histories because they're not secrets. Obviously, there's books about them, but they, they seem counterintuitive or they, they seem undertold, at least um, as a person who teaches at a Christian college. Um, and, uh, you know, where those those free enterprise ideas are still. Uh, pretty important and prevalent. Uh, hearing them helps me really recontextualize what's going on here yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, business, I guess not completely aside, but a little bit, you mentioned uh, communism and uh, sort of evangelicalism as a reaction to that as well. And I think that's also kind of another running thesis we've been exploring in this arc of podcasts um, that, you know, evangelicalism is constitutively tied up with the labor movement, like an anti-labor movement, mm-hmm. um, and also Cold War politics. Yeah. And that's obviously a big feature of your own research. So maybe you can help us uh, figure this out a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, so basically, we've been thinking... Um, pretty cynically, seeing evangelicalism as largely a reaction against labor power and then a willing partner in the anti-communist struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Um, do you think that's a right way to characterize it? Are we being too cynical? Um, or is there more to the story that we're missing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in many ways that the Cold War, um, what it does in part is offer sort of right-leaning groups and organizations a vital context within which to do their work and to leverage fears about communism and whatnot to get a whole host of not just evangelical but uh mainline catholic and you know i mean that cold war context is utterly you know is essential to building the kind of organizations that are going to eventually result in the emergence of the new right um, in this in the late 60s and onward and you know culminating in the rise of Reagan in the 1980s. Um, 
Because it, it's a it's a way of painting with a broad brush, and it would also be used, obviously, very decisively against um, civil rights activists who were often also part of labor movements, um, which, starting in the New Deal era in particular, had become much more integrated um, and were bases of, of power for people of color in the United States. Um, you know, lots of folks um, in those civil rights and labor movements are being painted as communists um, and, and whatnot. And that is a way in which um, yeah, mainstream organizations of all different kinds, including churches, are being mobilized um, against labor, against civil rights. Um, we know that folks like Harry Ward, who got his start in the early 20th century labor movement, um, social gospel minister and would go on to be involved in the civil rights movement and whatnot. I mean, the FBI has a file on Ward from for most of the last half of his life. Um, and all of his involvement and, and engagement around issues of labor and civil rights. So, um, I mean, I think part of the story here is not just about churches, but about the state and the ways in which state power was deployed, especially through the FBI, but not exclusively through the FBI, to um, censure, investigate, um, discourage uh, forms of Christian faith and activism that would challenge uh, the kind of boundaries that the powers that be had set around economic, social, political discourse. So, um, you know, the churches are certainly a big part of that story. And there's no question that kind of the ideals of Christian America, so to speak, um, and the idea that part of what made America Christian was its commitments to free enterprise. Um, those arguments, as you know, Kevin Cruz has very clearly shown in his book, One Nation Under God, I mean, those arguments are going to get a lot more play and attention because of the Cold War. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, you mentioned Harry Ward, who famously stood up for communists and had a lot of uh, relationships with them. And um, yeah, always a really fascinating character. And I think that's one thing we value about uh, your your other research um, that we talked about in the past in Union Made is trying to figure out where, you know, there are these, these stories of biographies where Christianity isn't, and, and even a, a certain kind of evangelical Christianity isn't automatically, um, you know, a pipeline to the right or something. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. You know, um, you even taught, you tell a story in Union Made, even about like a church strike, right? When congregants uh, lead a strike from churches when, when pastors don't pay enough attention to class politics and that sort of thing, like this real kind of taking it upon themselves to express this. Um, so what, what happened to that Christian energy surrounding class, uh, especially maybe in the early 20th century? Well, this is why I hesitate to make really broad generalizations about evangelicalism, because it is something that it's a, it's a, it's a tradition that doesn't have a strong centralized hierarchy. It doesn't have uh, you know, it doesn't have um, a really defined shape that can't be changed through organization. And I think partly what I what I would argue is that um, there was organizing work that I described in, in Union Made that working class evangelicals did to change their churches, um, and they were effective and 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 didn't get the churches to become themselves radical, but they did get the churches to embrace the labor movement, at least in its um, you know moderate forms by the early 20th century, which was a really significant breakthrough given that the churches were almost unanimously opposed to labor at the outset of the movement. Um, but partly as a result of what I've just been talking about, I mean, 
there was there were counter movements and and attempts to do kind of counter organizing, and those have also been very effective. And I will add that, I mean, I think you know I, I flagged earlier in the conversation the, the significance of race, and there's just no question that um, the fact that labor through the CIO in the 1930s really became an interracial movement. Um, there's just no question in my mind that that is also a significant piece of the story. Um, it was very clear to white Southerners and white Northerners alike uh, that the, 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 the New Deal was giving a lot of power to the CIO, um, you know, and, and to labor more broadly, but with the CIO as its most kind of effective and aggressive agent. And that the CIO as a kind of power base for interracial worker organizing was going to surely upset the Jim Crow order. Um, and so, I mean, I think, you know, uh, scholars have very clearly underscored the ways in which you have broad white Southern support for the early New Deal. Um, but as the, the kind of package expands and as it became clear that the racial implications were going to mean the demise of Jim Crow, um, you have Southern senators using their veto power. Ira Katznelson's uh, book, Fear Itself, really, I mean, powerfully underscores the ways in which um, the, the more the threat to Jim Crow became pronounced, the less you could get white Christians effectively to support the welfare state. And so, I mean, that's, that's another big piece of what the work that scholars have been doing is, is trying to understand when we're talking about evangelicalism and Republican or conservative politics in the modern United States, we are mainly talking about a white movement that emerges at the moment when you have the emergence of the modern civil rights movement, and that those two things are not totally disconnected. And so, I mean, partly, you know, some of the, and, you know, not to jump ahead again, but I mean, that some of the consternation and shock around Trump and the, the ways in which evangelicals have rallied so, you know, white evangelicals have so significantly rallied to his side. Um, I would argue that much of that shock is not warranted. Um, if you really take a close look at the history, and I've been kind of obviously having some conversations on Twitter with some of my colleagues who disagree with me about this, but I think if you look, if you read the literature on, for example, evangelicals, you know, strongly supportive of Jim Crow, um, it's just not that surprising to find them strongly supportive of Trump. And we shouldn't pretend that this kind of racial or racist turn, um, it's not a turn. It's, it's, a, it's a point, in my view, of continuity um, and is a big part of, again, how not just people at the top, but people at the grassroots have been persuaded to take up this gospel of free enterprise. There's no question that in partly in the United States for white working class people, that revolves around, a, it's a story about race. Um, and, and grassroots conservatism is one of the chief um, obstacles to labor organizing, class organizing in the modern United States because many, many white working class people in particular don't think unions are good. And I would argue that part of the reason they think that is because unions were at one point a threat to Jim Crow and there was a lot of organizing and money put into branding unions from that point on as the enemy. That's a really helpful connection to make to kind of demonstrate the ways that, yeah, racism and capitalism are really intertwined in that, uh, in that story. Yeah. Dang, that's great. Well, it's bad, but it's a great, it's a great story to hear <laughs> and to help me understand. Important. It's important and it's important for understanding the current moment and the ways in which white evangelicals have had so little trouble 
finding a comfortable position right alongside the current administration. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, speaking of the current administration, yeah, yeah um, just this past week, Trump said he had, uh, quote, a lot of big pastors uh, calling him up. Um, all those big pastors are behind him, which is, <laughs> I don't even know what that means, yeah. but he's got him. He's got him on his yeah. side. So I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about how um, evangelicals might shape up in the next election? I know, you know, you're a historian. We don't want to ask you to predict the future, <laughs> but um, I'm sure you could probably give us, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know, like based on what you've seen sort of historically, what would you say they might do? in this upcoming election, more of the same or something different? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you're right that historians were always reticent to predict, but uh, I think the the smart money bet, so to speak, would be that, uh, yeah, I think you'll see strong white evangelical support for Donald Trump. Um, I don't see any reason to expect anything other than that. I don't know if it'll be 81% or 76% or I would be very surprised if it's less than 70%, um, just because in the last generation, um, evangelicals, are, white evangelicals are Republicans and they vote Republican and they show up and they mobilize and they get out the vote for Republican candidates at every level. And um, I don't foresee any great change there. I think I was a little bit naive in 2016. I thought that um, that maybe that that younger generations in particular um, had perhaps made a move away from the the, the Republican Party, um, and I think I thought that the the Bush years and and the ways in which um, millennials, Gen Z, evangelicals who um, you know had an awareness of those years and and the role that evangelicals played in Bush coming to power and the wars and whatnot, I think uh, you know. I maybe thought that there was more play in sort of evangelical politics by by the time we got to the end of the Obama years. Um, but I think the 2016 election results showed very clearly that um, for the time being, at least, this is an unmovable um, block. I mean, not, I, I say that hopefully not totally unmovable, but um, I, I just don't see uh any significant shift um happening in fact it won't shock me to be honest if if there is stronger white evangelical support for donald trump in 2020 than there was in 2016 because i think um there are ways in which this president is doing exactly what white evangelicals want him to be doing and uh so i mean I, i'm not going to be shocked if it's 76%, but I'm also not going to be shocked if it's 84% or 85%, and, and we'll just have to see. But that that's the range that I would imagine. Um, and, you know, we'll see if, if these generational shifts that seem to be there um, will develop and change things over the longer haul. But, uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't think we're going to see that uh, come, come next year. Uh, well, you mentioned earlier, evangelicalism is this thing that kind of gets created uh, through a lot of intentionality. Um, you know, like I was really intrigued by what you were saying about dispensationalism, for instance, you know, that uh, in a certain way, people had to find ways to affirm the Bible in a in a hidden kind of way or using these secret knowledges or, you know, this kind of strange, like occulted uh, process. Um so I guess I'm wondering if you could say something about that in terms of our contemporary moment too, right? Like uh, evangelicals supporting Donald Trump. Uh, there's there's this kind of journalistic narrative that like 
uh, oh, this is really hypocritical. How could anybody who says they're for family values or for like biblical, I don't know, understandings of the world, et cetera, support somebody like this? Um, but that idea that this is like intentionally put together in a certain way or something, I think helps shed some light on that. So, I mean, do you have any idea of like, uh, could you have seen maybe like the writing on the wall or something in the last, you know, I don't know, like decade or couple of decades um, of evangelicals maybe being formed or forming themselves in such a way to form this kind of contingent that we see now? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think here's what I would say. As I said, you know, evangelicalism doesn't have centralized institutions, really. I mean, you know, the institutions that it does have are not strong ones um, in the sense of bending people's decision-making processes or whatnot. Um, I don't think it's a, a very large percentage of, of, of that 81% that are going to read an article in Christianity Today and it's going to change their mind. Um, and there aren't very many you know, church bodies that have the power to, to do that kind of work. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention may be being one of the stronger institutions, but it's again, it's an institution that's intentionally decentralized and Baptists uh, want, want it to be that way. So part of what that means is that um, there, there has been generations worth of organizing to produce the results that we have become accustomed to. And it is going to take, in my estimation, uh, a lot of work over a long period of time to really change things. One of the one of the the challenges, and and this is also something um, I'll, I'll mention Tim Glegg's book again, Guaranteed Pure, that I think he really underscores in that book, um, is that in those early 20th century years, when you get the rise of fundamentalism. Um, part of what really becomes distinctive about evangelicalism in the United States is its deeply individualistic character. And uh, there's really an investment in, in that individualism and um, you really see a kind of move away from, I mean, evangelicals are people who are increasingly going to reject the authority of ecclesiastical bodies um, and and look to parachurch organizations and non-denominational organizations. And so there's this kind of radical individualism at work, which again, I think is a, a culture and ethos that makes it a, a, a challenging space for people who want to build solidarity, um, organize collectively. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of work that's got to get done um, in evangelical communities to get, people to really understand and grapple with issues of kind of collective sin, collective action, um, because over the course of the last hundred years, through these different processes, through these deep investments, profound investments that have been made, um, that individualism is really uh, sunk deep into the well, so to speak. And so, um, so any process of change is going to have to address the racism. It's going to have to address the individualism. It's going to have to address the marriage of, of evangelicals and Republican politics. I think that in these younger generations, again, you, you do have um, a kind of rejection of some of the Cold War logics that, that helped to propel evangelicalism through the 1980s. Um, but it's not clear to me yet that uh, there are alternative logics that have taken strong enough hold, even in the younger generations, to really produce different outcomes or, or change the political calculus for evangelical communities. I will be really interested to see 
20 or 30 years from now, when the folks that um, grew up in the post-Cold War generation are running institutions, evangelical institutions, I'll be very curious to see what the what the situation is at that point. But I think so long as we've got kind of those Cold War generations are still large and in charge for the most part, uh, I don't anticipate any big changes. Yikes. <laughs> well, I'm, um, I'm sorry to be grim. I'm just trying to... No, it's... It, it's though, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Huh. Um, well, maybe we can shift gears just a little bit. <laughs> um, so you've got a new book on the way that's called On Earth As Is In Heaven, Social Christians and the Fight to End American Inequality, which I am extremely excited to read. Mm. Um, so it seems like this book picks up uh, kind of where Union Made left off, um, or at least that's my uh, that's what it looks like to me. Uh, but thinking about the tradition of social Christianity in the U.S., um, can you just tell us a little bit more about like your project? Yeah. Um, what did you discover in the research? What do you hope readers will be able to take away from it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe give us a sneak preview. Well, I think I think that the the kind of short way to give that preview would be to say that many of the assumptions that people are have rightly made about the kind of association of Christianity and politics in the modern United States and the contemporary United States, um, that Christianity must lend itself to kind of conservative uh, political organization, um, that that's just not true. And it's not actually even been true in the history of the United States. So this book is recovering a tradition, a kind of social Christian tradition of uh, a wide array of Christians, um, white, Protestant, sure, but also black uh, Christians, also Catholic uh, Christians of a variety of different racial uh, groups, that the ways in which uh, folks across Christian traditions have come to see the fight against inequality as a central aspect of Christian faithfulness. And so um, the book will span really the, the, the hundred years from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement with kind of chapters looking back even before the Civil War and one that will connect kind of the early 1970s to today and think about what's happened to this social Christian legacy and it's and it, and uh, where has it gone, so to speak, uh, you know, but but it'll look at the kind of rise and fall of, of this tradition and the ways in which it was driven in, in its early years, or early decades by grassroots movements who mobilized often in spite of the churches uh, to fight inequality within the churches and within the society at large. It'll look at the institutionalization of those intuitions in the early 20th century in churchly organizations, but also in politics and the New Deal. And then it'll look at how once you get that backlash against the New Deal and its politics and its churchly support, um, the ways in which social Christian momentum moves back to the grassroots through the rise of these kind of massive faith infused labor and civil rights movements, which are um, deeply convinced that uh, the gospel has something to say about inequality. So um, really interesting, wide ranging cast of characters ranging from kind of uh, grassroots activists like Ida B. Wells, uh, who famously fought against lynching in the late 19th century, to institutional actors like John Ryan, who was kind of the early uh, founder of kind of social Catholic institutions through the National Catholic Welfare Conference, um, and on into you know more well-known figures like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, who um, drew deeply on uh, Christian social teaching in their movement to get uh, farm workers organized against um, big agro business in uh, California's Central Valley. So it's a it's a wide ranging story, and hopefully it's going to offer readers uh, a glimpse or a sense of 
the real strong tradition in American life of Christians who have seen inequality as sinful and something to be uh, organized against. Um, there is a strong tradition there. It's easy to forget that in the in the course of the last 50 years, but uh, it's there and it's actually still with us, even if it's not had the kind of access to the halls of power that it once did. So much of what you were just saying, Heath, uh, I feel like is like classic Heath Carter research, uh, finding these really interesting connections between Christianity and inequality for sure, but especially that eye that you have for telling the, the grassroots side of these stories, um, you know, thinking about activists and, and big institutional actors for sure, but also really trying to tell like a people's story or a history of people's movements um, and where you know, people of faith show up in them. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about like that way of doing history and especially that way of doing the history of Christianity? Like a lot of people seem to tell even the story of the social gospel by looking at, you know, a book that might have been written by like Rauschenbusch or, uh, you know, a series of pamphlets or something. And that kind of becomes the, the textual tradition. Um, but you're able to find all these other kinds of things and archives and that sort of thing. So maybe just tell us a bit about that approach and what that reveals about the historical record. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's my conviction that, um, you know, and, and this is not unique to me, but that, you know, I'm, I am a social historian who is also interested in high politics and institutional actors. But I do believe that and I think it's warranted intellectually that, um, you know, grassroots movements, activists, uh, they are part of what is driving history. Um, and, and I think if you, if you look at, I'm actually teaching a course right now here at, at PTS on uh, the history of social Christianity, it's called social Christianity and American inequality. And, um, we just read Rauschenbusch, uh, on Monday and, um, and I, I introduced that discussion by saying, you know, a lot of times people would start with this text. I mean, this is often, you know, Christianity and the Social Crisis, which he published in 1907, is often thought about still to this day as kind of the classic statement of the social gospel. Um, but, you know, and I think by the time my class, my students are, are encountering Rauschenbusch, they have seen in the documentary record the fact that the kinds of things he's talking about, those intuitions, those ideas, those theological formulations, maybe they haven't been as systematized, maybe they haven't been published in a Macmillan book, but they are deeply present in um, grassroots communities and movements. And um, so I think just for uh, the purposes of kind of uh, telling the truest story, which is partly I think what historians are interested in doing, it's just, it's essential to to highlight the role that, that folks at the grassroots play. I'm also really personally um, and intellectually, kind of professionally, I guess, interested in that push and pull between grassroots and, and institutional leadership and the ways in which institutions change and don't change um, in response to grassroots activism. And I think um, partly what I just find most interesting about history are those very dynamics. And so, you know, I think looking at the ways in which folks at the grassroots can create pressure and leverage um, and then the ways that institutional actors scramble to to respond to that the ways that activists who have some kind of platform within institutions um, last week we were talking in that class about uh, two different kind of social catholic leaders in the early 20th century john ryan who's the institutionalist who's going to build organizations within the american catholic church Versus Thomas McGrady, who's the socialist, who's going to get excommunicated for his socialist convictions because he wouldn't sort of stuff them down. He wouldn't 
uh, mince words. He says, no, this is what I really believe that the Catholic Church needs to be about. This is what I think our faith leads us to say. Um, and he gets excommunicated for that. But you know, both Ryan and McGrady are um, actors with different kinds of strategies. So all of those dynamics, that's what I find just most fascinating. Um, and I think it's those are dynamics that are ever present in contemporary life as well. And, and I think that's another angle, I hope, I guess, that contemporary readers who are involved in grassroots movements or who are running institutions or who are interested in, in, in that interplay will find in this book uh, sort of some treatment of the, those dynamics and that push and pull, um, which as a Christian, I also happen to believe is uh, that push and pull, um, and especially the kind of push that grassroots activists can provide Without it, institutions are just dead in the water. Churchly institutions are not. I mean, they just, um, they ossify and uh, find themselves embedded in power structures that make it hard for them to be faithful, I think, to the to the best of the tradition. That is, that's like a really good way to put it. I, I don't know. I guess um, I'm struck by the, I'm struck by the way that um, the idea of Christian free enterprise is so based off of the evangelical sort of like looseness of organization. Mm. And... Um, and how, I mean, your answer to that is also, um, you know, grassroots organization, which is also sort of that loose organization. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess um, what strikes me as I'm like sort of reading through some of these texts in uh, Union Made, but also like with Bethany Morton and in Darren Dochik's work, is that um, there, there are these like historical, you know, networks of um, big business Christians who are reinforcing, you know, free enterprise, but also white supremacy through their informal networks. And I wonder what you think of about how those things like are still working themselves out. It's not like they've ever kind of gone anywhere, I suppose. So, yeah. I, I mean, um, I don't know. Could you, is, is there anything that you would say about like where you'd look for these networks now, if you were, if you were to trace them sort of contemporaneously? Well, I mean, I think, I think that, uh, as we've been discussing today, I mean, the, the work that's been done since the 1930s that historians in the last 15 or 20 years have, I think, really, really carefully documented the different levels of organization to create, buy-in, and, and generate and promote a gospel of free enterprise, um, which, as you, as you rightly point out, was also a gospel that had deeply kind of white supremacist oftentimes implications, um, even if those weren't always explicitly stated. Uh, that that work has been immense and it is unquestionably still with us, partly in the institutions that have been founded and which carry on the, the legacy of that, the earlier uh, organizers. And so I think, you know, and this is, you know, as, as someone who is interested in the life of evangelicals and wants American evangelicals, white evangelicals to be as faithful as they can be in, in their Christian witness. I mean, I think, um, the work that Christian Smith, for example, uh, has done around the kind of segregation of evangelical and, and white Christian institutions, the fact that so many white Christians don't even come into contact with people of color in their lives, the, the ways in which whiteness pervades the halls of power in evangelical institutions, um, these are really, really serious issues that remain ever-present. And, you know, I mean, if my if the history tells us anything, it's that it's going to take a lot of organizing and a lot of effort to really um, shake up the the ways that these institutions are used to doing business, the way that they were formed to do business. Um, and it's not to say that they're you know all evangelical institutions are full of bad actors, not at all. I mean, I like I said, I 
I see myself as someone who has in many ways been deeply formed by evangelicalism and who is in many ways carries forward some of the, the ways that I was formed uh, to the present day. Uh, so it's not that I think that everything that comes out of these institutions is bad, but there is no question in my mind that there are ways in which these institutions need to be reformed um, through processes of, of coming to an awareness of their implication in racism, in class uh, oppression, and and gender oppression, um, and and the ways in which they need to to you know find ways to be reorganized um, and and to be reborn. Um, I think those are things that evangelicals can get behind as a rebirth. And and I think some of these institutions need to be reborn um, if they are really going to be life-giving and really speak Christianly uh, in a sort of authentic Christian witness to the world. Um, I think right now we are seeing the wreckage, uh, of some of the, the, the most recent wreckage of institutions that have been deformed by racism and, and classism and patriarchy, and we are seeing the ways in which for the church and for the society at large, the, the consequences are devastating. And uh, I don't have, again, uh, I, I hate to be the purveyor of, of uh, pessimism here, but I, I don't have a lot of, of hope in this moment that, that uh, these institutions are going to take up this work um, this year or next. But I do believe in the power of organizing. I do believe that change can happen. I do think that that uh, people at the grassroots, even young people, I often, you know, I hear in the course of my work and speaking, lots of young people who are very disenchanted with the institutional church. And part of what I want to tell them and say is uh, go to the annual meeting and and try to take over the institution, <laughs> you know, uh, and 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 show up and and say I'm the only 23 year old here. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why there are another 23 year olds here. And um, I know a little bit about that. And if you're interested in, in getting more 23 year olds in the door, then let me tell you a little bit about what we need to be about. I, I think that is the I, I think that we need these institutions to to uh, be more faithful. And uh, it's going to take people who are willing to do that organizing work. And so I hope uh, there are people listening today who will. Uh, be willing to take up that work, which is going to be hard work, but uh, could could pay real dividends uh, for those who are interested in Christian institutions being more faithful. Uh, well, that's a great thing to uh, kind of uh, maybe land the plane of this interview a little bit. Um, do you have kind of as you've thought as a historian and looked at all of these uh, interplays between institutions and uh, organized movements, um, do you have any kind of examples or strategies that really sort of stand out to you? You know, obviously you can't just map something that worked in like the 60s onto today or something like that. But, um, you know, in, in all this work that you've been doing, tracing these social movements, what makes these kinds of things effective? What makes uh, organizing, um, you know, work. Uh, and today, uh, what what would that take? What would it mean for Christians to get organized and do this kind of uh, work that you're talking about? Yeah, well, I think I think for churchly institutions and for probably other kinds as well, um, unfortunately, I think institutions are reticent to change unless they sense that there is some kind of threat and to their existence and to their ability to do the work that they feel, um, you know, called to do. And uh, I think that that's where I do think actually there, and this is all I can end hopefully with this, that, I mean, I think that in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of talk about the rise of the nuns, the rise of people who are not 
religiously affiliating any longer, and those tend to be especially younger people, but not exclusively younger people. I think all that discourse, scholarly, popular, and otherwise, around the nuns, to, to my mind, that is fertile ground for people who want to organize and reform Christian institutions and get them to do different things in the world, because it is a real threat. And I think Christian institutions of all different kinds right now know that they're under threat. They know that their numbers are diminishing. They know that people are less interested in the institutions than they've ever been, or at least that they've been in, in generations. And I think that's a leverage point. So I, I would encourage you, if you're listening and you uh, belong to a church or you don't belong to a church, that you've got to acknowledge, you, know, you see the ways in which church leaders today are experiencing stress and anxiety about the demise and decline of their institutions. And in that anxiety is a real opportunity for people who want to reform these organizations and institutions to come in and say, look, Part of the reason why people aren't interested in this church is because it doesn't seem to have a faithful witness on and speak to it. And I think, um, you know, maybe it's naive to think so, but I, I do think that those are the kinds of conditions that are ripe for organizing. And and I, I hope that people will, will take that opportunity rather than say, you know, oh, I'm done with the church because it doesn't speak to my concerns um, and I'm not going to go. And then, I mean... It's not that everybody has to go to church. You know, maybe you find other communities through which you can do the work you want to do in the world. But I do believe that church institutions continue to have some power in our society, and they do have a role to play in in speaking about how we should organize ourselves as a society. And so I hope that these institutions will speak more faithfully to those questions in the future than they have in the past. Um, you know, revive some of the tradition that I'm talking about in this book. Um, and I think uh, young people who are willing to do that work of organizing, I think there's a great opportunity ahead for them. Thanks. I think it's a great, yeah, it's a great note to end on. Uh, it is bleak and uh, a lot of difficult things ahead, I suppose, but it is like an uplifting kind of idea that I guess folks just ought to show up and yeah. that's a hard thing to do, yeah. but um, helpful advice, just the same. Yeah. See, see, it's not over. So the story goes on and, and, uh, there have been major twists and turns along the way from the very beginning. So uh, there is hope in that. That's true. Uh, we'll just keep checking the proverbial playground for uh, yeah. the kids and make sure that we uh, <laughs> the, the rapture didn't come or something. Uh, cool. Well, thanks so much, Heath. We really appreciate you coming on the show and being a good scholar and uh, and engaging with the uh, the sort of thing we do here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Always, always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Uh, we still have stickers and shirts and that sort of thing at redbubble.com slash The Magnificast. You can also find all of Heath's great stuff out on the internet, but specifically um, some of the stuff that he mentioned in this episode is definitely worth uh, checking out. If you've never read like Union Made, it's a really, really great book on Christianity in Chicago. Um, and we talked to him about that book and his uh, book that he edited called The Pew and the Picket Line, also really good. Uh, and be on the lookout, too, for his forthcoming book, On Earth As It Is in Heaven. 
Um, thanks again to Heath for coming on the show. As always, the music is by Maury Armstrong, and our outro is the illogical spoon. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.